I want to wait till all the kids get out before I start this sermon. Just kidding. Just kidding. It's judges, people. I didn't write the book, okay? So, Craig Hoxie came up to me this morning and said, I thought we were going to be starting a study in First and Second Samuel. Well, we are. We are. It's just going to take us a little while to get there. Um, so we're starting a series today called The Promised King. And that promised king, obviously, as, as we should understand and will hopefully, you know, Lord willing by the, well, immediately, that that promised king is Jesus. But that promised king is portrayed for us in different ways, shadowed for us, typed or pictured for us, um, of course, in David. And I've always, as long as I've been here, I've wanted to, to preach a series on the life of David and just never have really done that. And thought, okay, I, I want to, let's do that. Well, as we looked at First and Second Samuel, and I was thinking through that, well, we really need to do the whole book of Samuel. And First and Second Samuel are known as Samuel um, in the ancient text. So... To, to study David, you have to look and study the life of Saul. And so you start working your way back. And, and as I was preparing for that and seeing this picture of David being the, the one through whom Christ would come, well, the book right before 1 Samuel is Ruth. And Ruth ends with this beautiful reminder, this picture, this genealogy um, that lists, of course, David. And so, well, we need to go back and look at Ruth. And I thought, well, we'll just do an overview of Ruth. We'll do that in one sermon. You can scoot through those four chapters pretty quickly. I thought, no, Ruth would be a beautiful Advent series. Just working our way through that promise in in those four chapters of Ruth, four Sundays of Advent. It worked well. Needed to fill that in for a couple of weeks for that to work on the calendar. And then I recognized that the beauty of Ruth is only understood best when we look back and see Judges and see the picture of what goes on in Judges. And you could argue that we need to keep going further and further back. And I would agree with you on that, but that's not what we're going to do. Okay? So, The Promised King is the title of our sermon series. And before we get there, we need to look at the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges, by anyone's right standard, is R-rated. And that's being gracious. I'm serious. That's being gracious. Um, the book of Judges is filled with idolatry, with death, with slaughter, with lies and deception. It's filled with adultery. It's filled with sexual promiscuity. It's filled with scandal. And there's a lot of reasons that that is the condition. It can all be summarized, though, by words that we'll see both at the beginning of Judges and at the end of Judges. In those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the problem that was going on in those days of Israel. There was no king, there was no leadership, there was no godly leadership, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the most shocking feature of Judges is not the depth of those sins that we see but the mercy and grace that God repeatedly and continually shows. It's, it's astounding. Um, God's patience and his compassion and his steadfast covenant love are seen most brightly, and I think most clearly, against that dark backdrop of what's going on in those days when there was no king and people did just whatever they wanted to do, whatever was right in their own eyes. So we're going to take two weeks to, to look at the book of Judges. So obviously it's a high-altitude flyover, okay? We're just, we're just looking at, at portions of it, parts of it. Lord willing, we'll, we'll try to tie it together. Um, in some ways, next week's message is darker in some sense than even this week's is because of what we ultimately see taking place there in Israel. And it is there that this, all of a sudden, this flower of Ruth, the book of Ruth comes up. Um, and it's just even astounding. It's just, it's just beautiful to see. 
Um, so the biblical context of the book of the Judges and, and God's redemptive plan all is seeded, if you will, like the seed there is planted in this, in this field of God's covenant promises, God's covenant relationship. And that was summarized for me best. Susan showed me a passage yesterday in a, in a commentary. She's, she's teaching through the life of David now. And a commentary by Woodhouse, she showed me a quote in it um, that was just amazing. And I want to share a part of that as we think about this covenant relationship. So let's think about promises. Actually, let's think about one promise. Let's just think about one promise, okay? So Woodhouse says, the golden thread that holds the whole Bible together. The central message that makes sense of all the details is this. God has promised. That's it. From Genesis to Revelation, to understand the Bible as we need to, centers on that truth. God has promised. He goes on to say, The Bible is valuable for the wealth of information it contains about many things, but the Bible is of ultimate worth because it is in it God makes his promise. And what is that one promise, he asked? There are various ways to express it. God has promised to bless the creation he has made and humankind whom he has made in his image, and he has promised to do this through a great nation descended from Abraham. So therein, there, just in that, we have that promise that comes from, from Genesis. Remember the, the promise that's early in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12? God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's that promise that God makes to Abraham. And that promise is ultimately fulfilled, we know, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what God is going to do through this new nation of Israel that Paul talks about in the book of Galatians. What we saw in Revelation chapter 7. Of this people of God assembled before him from every tribe and tongue, nation. That's, that's this picture. And so this vision of this great multitude is just a picture. And so Woodhouse says this. At the risk of oversimplifying, we can say that the purpose of the Old Testament is to provide the links between the promise we hear in Genesis and the fulfillment announced in the New Testament. And the most important of those links, he says, is King David. And in this sense, David is the central human figure in the Bible. That's a lot. David is the central human figure in the Bible, Woodhouse says, because he is that crucial link between Abraham and Jesus. And so to, to appreciate and understand the significance of a quote like that, to see that David is the promised king, reminds us of that promise that God has made. And as I thought through this over the last couple of weeks, working on this two-week series in Judges, I'll, I'll just tell you up here at the front, I've struggled. I have struggled with the reality that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 holds up for us as examples of faith People that we see in the book of Judges, and two of them at least, I go, what? What? That's an example of faith? Like Samson? And so I've struggled with that. Now, I feel like the Lord's helped me greatly with that, even over the last couple of days. Um, But this picture that God makes a promise... And that the means by which God fulfills his promise includes a lot of, as Grandpa used to say, crooked sticks. Okay? God hits straight licks with crooked sticks. And there's a bunch of crooked sticks in Judges. Okay? There are. God's promise. But also we see contextually in the book of Judges an unfulfilled conquest. God had given the people of Israel some very specific Guidelines for when they entered in. Turn over to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, look at chapter 7. And chapter 7 reads this way, starting in verse 1. 
When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many of the nations, many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. The word there in the Hebrew language is a word, that concept, that theme is, is, is replete throughout this section of the Old Testament. Dedicating, as it says here, to destruction. Committing them to the Lord and to the Lord's purposes there. We have a hard time understanding this concept in our culture and in our time. And I'm not going to be able to take the time today to to really get into that the way we need to. But this is God's instruction, and, and we're trusting Him in this regard. This is what God says. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. That's God's instructions to the people of Israel. Why? Why would he instruct them in that way? The answer, I believe, is seen in the very next verse there in Deuteronomy. Look at what he says next. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And it is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So here's this picture of God's steadfast covenant faithfulness. That he keeps his promise. And he says, you are my people. I've chosen you out of sovereign grace. That's it. No other reason. Just out of my sovereign grace over you. And he says, you are holy to me. Which sets the context for everything that they're called to do and be. And so that's why he commanded it. Now there's, I think, three reasons that really go a little deeper than that. Just in that surface reason or in that umbrella reason, if you will. One is that God is going to judge the Canaanites. He's going to judge these nations. And we might say, well, why would he do that? I mean, he doesn't give them a chance. No, he does give them a chance. If you read the stories, if you understand the context, they are given the opportunity. All right. An example of this is in a girl we'll see later on called Rahab. They have the opportunity to respond to what they see God do. But judgment is coming upon them. That in itself is a picture of what we see in the end in Revelation. All right? Everything points. Everything points. Everything has got a purpose in it there. Judgment of the Canaanites. Secondly, protection of the Israelites. Protection of God's people. I want you protected from that influence. Protected from that idolatry. Protected from that godlessness. Protection for them. And then finally, fulfillment of God's promise. He promised Abraham a land. He promised his people a land. That in itself is a picture of the new heaven and the new earth for us. So God has established these guidelines for his people. For judgment, for protection, and for fulfillment of what he has promised would take place. Now here is how it is supposed to work, okay? What, what, what was supposed to happen as God came and conquered all of those nations? And took care of all of those great enemies in front of this small, if you will, and fairly weak in comparison nation of Israel. How's that, how is that supposed to work? Well, again, I think Rahab is an example of that. You don't have to turn there, but it says over in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab and the Israelite spies are having this initial conversation there at the beginning of Joshua. And before the men laid down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land 
and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. That's a pagan woman responding to the witness of God in the works of God as he delivered his people. She responded. Many who saw the same thing, many whose hearts melted in them, did not turn to God but turned in on themselves and their gods. So they had a chance. They had an opportunity. That's how it was supposed to work. So, so here's what has happened. Turn finally to the book of Judges. All right. And in Judges chapter 1, God gave them clear instruction in Deuteronomy. Go in and possess the land. Go in and, and take care of it. All right? Hang on. I'm in Joshua. I thought, wait a minute. That doesn't look right. No wonder it doesn't. In Judges chapter 1, here's what the nation of Israel instead did. I'm just going to give you some examples. Look at verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Look at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages. It says later on, the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites in the land of Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. So we see repeatedly over and over, tribe by tribe by tribe, they did not do what God had instructed them to do. So then what God said would happen began to happen indeed just as he had said. We'll get to that in just a second. So that's what has happened. They have not driven out. But here's the other thing that has happened. What does it say there in the very beginning of Judges in verse 1? After the death of Joshua. That's how the book of Joshua begins. After the death of Moses. So you have this change in leadership. You have this natural life cycle of men. And a life cycle of leadership. So Moses died. And Joshua took his place. And Joshua had been raised up and trained up and prepared. Both by Moses, by God, by the context, by the nation. To take that place of leadership. But we come to Joshua. Or his life and his death. And we find in the book of Judges. That after the death of Joshua. Things did not go well. Look in chapter 2. Lots of times you'll see in these passages a statement and then a further, a further discussion of that statement. A little more detail on it later on. That's what we have in chapter 2. Starting in verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance, in Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Look at verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And then there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, 
who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned. And the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. That's a summary of what follows in the rest of the book. Except that distress gets deep and dark. It gets worse instead of getting better. That's the picture that we have in the book of Judges. And what is, what is the, the, the big problem here? Is this downward spiral of sin. None of, those, none of those fathers woke up one morning and said, I'm going to lead my family into idolatry today. Today we're going to set out to provoke the anger of our good and gracious God. They didn't wake up with that as their goal for the day. But sin doesn't work that way. And this downward spiral that we see, this slippery slope that follows, there's a clear announcement of that in chapter 2 of Judges. Now the angel of the Lord, look at it, the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal, from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So there's that announcement. And there's this, this slide, if you will. And what I had read before in verse 11, there's this, this downward spiral. So what is that spiral? What does that look like in the book of Judges? Well, the first judge that we run into, and I'll talk more about who these judges are actually, in chapter 3 is one named Othniel, or Othniel. Depending on whether you're from Boone or Person County or Bladen County, I guess it's going to depend on how you pronounce that. Othniel, Othniel is one of the shorter narratives of any of the judges. All right, it really there's not a lot that's there as far as number of words, but there's a lot there in the content. Okay, and this little section on Othniel sets up a pattern for all the rest of the book. So let's look at it for just a second. Starting there in verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kishon Rishthaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kishon Rithmaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the God raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Ophanel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishon Rishthaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over that king. I'm tired of reading it, okay? So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Ophanel, the son of Kenaz, died. Verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So you have this pattern. Israel does evil, right? Number one. Number two, the Lord judges them for that, gives them into the hand of their enemies. Number three, they cry out to the Lord because they are under this hand of this enemy. Number four, the Lord raises up a judge or raises up a deliverer. And the Lord gives that enemy then into the hand of the Israelites, into the hand of that judge. So then there's peace for different periods of time throughout the book. And then that judge dies. And when that judge dies, the cycle starts all over again. Seven steps throughout the book. Othniel, 
is also a pattern for what God generally does in the life of those judges, in those that he raises up. And we'll look at that in just a minute. So what's surprising about this is not the cycle of sin. It's God's patience. And it, and it should surprise us. It, it, should, it should shock us. Grace should still shock us, church. If we get too comfortable with grace, we're losing touch with just how dark our sin was outside of Christ. We're, grace should always amaze us. We should always sing amazing grace like it's the first time we ever heard of it. And the amazing thing in the book of Judges, the most shocking feature, is not the sin of the people. <laughs> it should not shock us, right? We see it every day in the news. What should shock us is the mercy of God, his patience, his compassion, his steadfast covenant love. That's what should, should just shock us and indeed is the focus throughout the book of Judges. So God raises up then because of his mercy. He gives them a provision, Judges, at the right time and in the right place. Now here's what we need to understand the book of Judges and these, these 12 characters who are listed here. Take that vision of Judge Judy and kill it. All right, get it out of your mind. What will work better is one of the Avengers. Okay? Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, whatever suits you. Get rid of Judge Judy and get an Avenger. Because that's really more of the characteristic that we see in these, in these characters that are given for us here. This, this pattern, though... And it's given explicitly for the first judge, who is Othniel, and for the last judge, which is Samson. And there again, I'm just working through this in my own mind going, wow. It just plays out so differently in those two individuals. The pattern that's given for these judges is, number one, that they are called to serve in this capacity as a judge. All right, But again, don't think black robe on a bench in a courtroom. Think about someone who is called to do, a, 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 in, in many ways, a supernatural work of deliverance, which is what they do. A judge saves, he delivers. Here's the other thing to recognize. The time frame that covers the book of Judges, and by the way, it goes all the way into 1 Samuel, this time frame, can be anywhere from 350 to 400 years and if you just look at the numbers, if you add up all the numbers that are given in the judges' different reigns or rules or in their period of influence, it doesn't add up. Here's the reason for that, I believe, is because these judges, think of them more as even the idea of a governor of a state doesn't work because some of these lines were not as clear. But these were tribal leaders in distinct geographic areas there of, of Israel, of the Holy Land. So it's, it's more of a, a locale, more of a local, public, a local influence over that particular family or that particular tribe. And some of them run concurrently. Like this could be going on in one side of the country and this could be going on in the other side of the country at the same time. Othanel's influence was not nationwide. See what I'm saying? So... As we look at these judges, they're given specific responsibility over specific areas for a specific time. But what is common in there is they are empowered by the Spirit of God for that. But even there, understand, Old Testament Spirit of God work and New Testament Spirit of God work is very, very different. The Spirit of God comes on a man or a woman in the Old Testament for a specific time, for a specific purpose, and then it's gone. Not so for us in the new covenant. All right? So God's provision are judges at the right time and in the right place. Othniel is the first one. He fought and defeated the king of Mesopotamia, and he brought 40 years of peace, it tells us. The next one that's listed after him is this character called Ehud. Ehud. He killed the king of Moab. It's a, it's, it's a violent, ugly picture. Okay? He makes a sword that will fit into his pants so he can sneak it in. Ehud, you ought to think when you, I mean, when you think about the, the king of Moab, think about Jabba the Hutt, okay? Just this big massive mound of fat with a head on it, okay? 
Because I think that's what he was. Because it tells us in the text that he stuck that sword in past the hilt and the sword disappeared under the fat folds of the king. And evidently he was up on top in the outhouse because he died in his own feces. That's where they found him. It's, it's an ugly picture. And Ehud then calls together the Israelites to go and defeat the, Moab, the Moabites. And they do. And they had 80 years of peace. By the way, he was left-handed. They, they, that was important for us to know for some reason. I know. I know. I see you left-handed folks going, amen. Amen. Just keep your swords at home. Okay? All right? Shamgar comes next. He killed 600 Philistines, it tells us, with an ox goad. Now, if you're not from any place where they use ox goads, just think about a stick anywhere from three, four, five, six feet long with a big spike or blade on the end of it. So you can kind of jab that ox and get him to go. This is a supernatural feat, I believe, absolutely, because 600 Philistines are killed by one man with an ox goad. Okay? Next comes this character named Tola. And all we know about him, well, he's not next, but I'm skipping some because I've got a... We're going to look at the ones that are listed in Hebrews. Over in chapter 10, there's Tola. All it tells us about him is that he lived 23 years, and then he died and he was buried. That's all it says. 23 years, died and was buried. Next comes a man named Jair. It tells us that he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. Then he died and was buried. All right? He judged Israel 22 years. Ibzan, in Judges 12, judged seven years. He died and he was buried. Elon, in Judges 10, was died and died and was buried, as was Abdon. Okay, so some of these are major figures that we're very familiar with. Some are minor. There's 12 altogether. I, I want us to think for just a minute about the four that are lifted up for us in the book of Hebrews. As examples of those who, people of faith, people of faith. You don't need to turn to Hebrews unless you just want to. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we find these individuals listed. You're familiar with this, this beautiful section of God's word in Hebrews chapter 11. That tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. So these people that we see in this chapter, including these from Judges, are commended. Okay? They're commended. And so, if we flip over and see how these are listed there, they're kind of thrown in. And the way they're thrown in there is extraordinary to me. And and, and I'm, and I'm I'm not real comfortable with it, but... You know what? Nobody asked me if I'm comfortable with Scripture. All right? And this one right here is, is just one that's um, a challenge for me. It says in verse 29, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, in verse 30, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? Now, you may not remember from our study in Hebrews, but we begin our study in the book of Hebrews by reading through the entire book in one setting. Because the book of Hebrews, we're told, and I think it's true, that it was a sermon all right, a letter or a sermon that was read or declared in one sitting. So like many preachers, this preacher was getting toward the end of his time, but he was not finished with his notes yet, I think. Because he says, because of time, that's not really what he says, but he says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
So I'm running out of time, but let me just mention, and, and that's exactly what he does. He just mentions. But given the whole context of Scripture, how do we, how do we put in the same sentence, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel? Well, we do. By grace. <laughs> we do. We should be hugely encouraging to us, but that'll be an application point at the end. Okay? So, let's think about these four for just a minute. These who are held up for us and commended for their faith. All right? I want us just to, I, I'm not going to take time to go into a lot about these four individuals because we can't. We don't have the time for that. And I'm going to take them in the order that they're given in the book of Hebrews, which is not the order that they come in the book of Judges. All right? So we're just going to take them as they're given here in Hebrews 11. The first one is Gideon. His account is given for us in Judges 6, 7, and 8. There's three chapters given to Gideon. And to help us understand a little bit about this, I want to read just the first little bit of chapter 6. Judges 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel and became, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Do you see what's happened? The promised people of God living in the promised land have been forced by this oppressor to leave their homes and take up residence in the caves. They're hiding for their lives. But it's still an agricultural society. And it says, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I led you up from the land of Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord of your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So there's that cycle. And it says next that the angel of the Lord came and sat under a terebinth tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So here's Gideon beating out what wheat he had in secret for fear that the Midianites would come as they've shown that they will and take it from him. The Israelites are starving, living in the caves. And God hears their cry. And he raises up this man named Gideon. And it says later on in chapter 6, in verse 34, that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. So here's the Spirit of the Lord coming on Gideon at this time and in this place. Now, sometimes Gideon is held up as an example in our Sunday school classes. And that's good and right as far as it goes. But Gideon also is an example to us that is not one that I think we should follow, okay? Now, the Spirit of the Lord is on him. This whole thing that goes on later on in the life of Gideon with the fleece being laid out before God, some say there's cultural and contextual circumstances that would warrant that. I, I personally don't agree. I think he's more trying to manipulate God than he is. He is declared by the... the, the by the angel of the Lord who speaks to him, he, he, he says that Gideon is this mighty warrior, okay? He, he's, he's given that example. You are a mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, it says there in chapter 6 and verse 12. So he is that. But yet he is also a man filled with fear. He is a man who is afraid of men. 
He's afraid who, when he's commanded to go tear down the idols and tear down the, the altars to these pagan gods, does it at night for fear that someone might see him doing it. So he's obedient in some ways, but I just I point out the inconsistency there. He demonstrates a lack, I think, sometimes of just taking God at his word. And this fleece idea here is just an example of trying to manipulate God, I believe. It's a picture, though, of God's mercy. God's not obligated to do what Gideon asked him to do with the fleece, but he does. He does. Because God sees fit to do that at times. So for those who say, well, this is just how you can know what God's will is, I said, no, I think you're misapplying the scriptures. I don't think that is exactly what we can learn from that passage. What we can learn from this passage is how great our God is. Not necessarily just how great Gideon is. Although, in the end, Gideon takes God at his word. He believes God's promise. Gideon is commanded to go up against the Midianites. He takes 32,000 men. God winnows it down to 10,000. It's going to be a, it's going to be really hard, 10,000 against this army. But God says, it's too many. I don't want you boasting and taking pride in your victory. And so God winnows it down then. We're familiar with that, down to 300. And so there's great victory there for the people of God. God, God brings about this, this great deliverance for them. And in, and in chapter 8, Gideon is held up both as an example of what is good and I believe also what is terrible. Chapter 8 of Judges is one of those high points in Gideon's ministry and a low point. Look at it. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And in verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Amen, Gideon. Not yet, but amen. What a high point. What a, that is a powerful statement of faith. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it his earrings and his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he had requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the king of Midian. And besides the collars that had been around the necks of the camels. Look at verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Orpah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So many had was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon's. Gideon's high point in, verse, in chapter 8 is this amazing declaration that I'm not going to rule over you. The Lord will. And in the same chapter, out of the gold that they've captured from their enemies, he makes this ephod, this thing that was meant to be an ornament or a a clothing of worship, and the people turned it into an idol and worshipped it, whored after it. The problem with all of these pagan religions, by the way, are they are religions of fertility. They're trying to coerce the gods through sexual practice to give birth to the land. And so here the Israelites have, have done that with this thing that Gideon created. Does it remind you of another instance in the book of Exodus? With a golden cow after God had delivered. Yet Gideon, in the end, is held as an example of someone who believed God's promise. All right? Next comes this man named Barak, Judges chapter 4 and 5. You can go back and look at that. I encourage you to. Let's just flip back there for just a second. In chapter 4, Oh, by the way, listen to this in verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera. He lived in this city there. All right, verse 2. Then the people of Israel cried out. I practiced that name a lot, okay? I really did. I've read this thing a bunch. 
And you don't want to hear me butcher that name. So, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for his help. Look at this. This is no normal army that Jabin, king of the Canaanites, had and his general, Sisera. They had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So this is the picture that we have there in the book of Judges in chapter 4. And what we have next is this astonishing picture in verse 4. Now Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. So here's this woman named Deborah serving, not officially it seems, because God has not called her out, but she's serving in this capacity as a judge. The people are bringing their issues to her, and she's, she's helping them work through them, it says there. Interestingly, A.W. Pink says in his commentary on Judges, and, I, and I'll just quote what he says, this is, quote, proof of the terrible low state into which the covenant people had fallen. In fact, that Deborah was serving in this capacity. I'll not go that far. I'll not go that far. I do think, though, it's indicative of what, can I just be real honest with you? It's not, to me, that unusual. When I came to Westwood, there were three ladies serving as deacons. Godly, godly women. One of them still with us. And to a person, they said, we're doing this because there's no men to do it. I think that was probably the case with Deborah. The need was there, and God gave her the ability to do it. But the person that's mentioned in the book of Hebrews is not Deborah, but the man that she called out, and she did. Look at the next verse. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the king of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river. So she gives him this, this command, Go, take your army and meet this man. Barak's response to her in verse 8, I'll go if you'll go with me. But if you'll not go with me, I will not go. Now, this is the one that's held up as an example of faith. All right, just saying, just saying. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. One of the amazing things about the book of Judges, of Judges is how women are put in these places of steam. But not every one of them. You have women of faith like Deborah and Jael here in this section of Judges. And then you run across a woman like Delilah. She is no model for anything. But yet, these women here in this account with Barak are lifted up for us as examples. Now this whole situation with Jael and Sisera plays out later on in the passage. And I want to just throw a couple of terms out to you that I read in one commentary that I thought were fascinating. One is anti-savior. Anti-savior. Anti-savior is just that, opposite of savior. Okay? And that's what we find in Sisera, this commander of the Canaanite army. Because when his army is being decimated by God through the armies that Barak has raised up, Sisera runs for his life, leaves his army being defeated and destroyed, and runs for his life. Anti-Savior. Jesus didn't run. This commander does. And he runs to this tent of this woman. She's the wife of Heber the Kenite. She's named Jael. He comes and seeks refuge there. Give me a little water, he says. So she gives him milk to drink. She covers him up, saying that she's going to hide him. And he says, you stand at the beginning of the, at the opening of the tent there. If anyone comes and asks for me, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, tell them no, he's not here. So while he's in there, tired, running for his life, having taken what she's given him to eat and to drink, 
She softly goes in there, picks up a long tent peg and a hammer, and drives it through the temple of his head, crushing his head and pegging him to the ground. That's one tough woman. Oh, by the way, Genesis 3 said he would crush the head of the serpent. There's not a lot of open gospel references in the book of Judges, but they are there. They are there. And here the head is crushed. The anti-savior is killed. And there's a lot of similarities in this account between Exodus and Judges. And so what we have in chapter 4 is the account of this victory. And in chapter 5 is this beautiful song of deliverance written by Deborah and Barak as they sing of what God has done. Okay? So, again, in the end, Barak and Deborah took God at his word. They believed his promise. Samson. Turn over to Judges chapter 13. We're almost there. I'm not going to take along with Samson. All right? Judges chapter 13. Well, what do you know? The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there were two people of faith, a man and a woman. Zorah and his wife. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and, and, and made her a promise. And said, here's the instruction for this boy. All right? He's to, he's to take a vow of a Nazarite. Be careful for yourself. First he says to her, be careful. Drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So she came and told her husband that she'd had this appearance from this, this man of God. They... Recount that promise. Verse 8. Lord, please let the man whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who is to be born. How many parents have prayed that prayer? Lord, please teach us what to do with this child. <laughs> so God listened and he sent that angel again and they offered sacrifices. In fact, they said, we've seen the Lord. And later on, it says, we're going to die because we've, we've seen this, this image and, and the wife wisely says, no, if, if the Lord was going to kill us, he would have already killed us. So these are people of faith. And I believe they spoke that faith into their son, Samson. All right? But the people sin, and God raises up this man. And he's extraordinary. He tears apart a lion by his hands, rips him apart limb by limb. Kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. We're familiar with these stories, with these accounts. This is Avenger kind of stuff, guys, right? I mean, this is superhero stuff. He performs supernatural feats of strength. And again, Sunday school lessons will have us look at Samson and hold him up as this, as this amazing example of, of heroic deeds. And in many ways they are. But what we see in the pages of Judges for Samson is very different from some hero that we want to follow in his footsteps. Because Samson is no hero when it comes to his character. All right? He takes a Philistine wife, which is symptomatic, all right? Symptomatic, if you will, of exactly what's going on with all the rest of Israel. But one Philistine woman is not enough for Samson. And so he has all of these sexual encounters with these Philistine women. He breaks his Nazarite vow and what he eats. So he's not this picture. One commentator said many of Samson's heroic feats are seen as blatant acts of disobedience to the law. Acts of selfishly motivated man who cares little for his spiritual calling. I mean, that's a fair assessment of Samson. And yet, when she bore this son, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him, it says in Judges 13.25. So the Spirit of God is at work there. Later on in Judges chapter 14, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. When he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who told the riddle. That's a little whole situation that's problematic in my mind in some ways. Samson is pretty smart. 
He's sharp. He gives them this riddle. They can't figure it out. So they entice his wife to coerce him into telling her. So she tells them and they pay her off. He has promised to give them this, this prize, if you will, this 30 garments of clothing. So when he loses the bet, it says the Spirit of God rushes on him. He goes and he strikes down 30 people and takes their garments as a payoff for his debt. The account of Samson ends in chapter 16 with one we're very familiar with. Look at it. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, you remember the account, right? Delilah? His strength is in his hair. Of course, that's symbolic of the strength of God upon him. She finally gets it out of him where the key to his strength is. This is a bad woman. And so they cut his hair. He's enslaved by the Philistines. He's brought in for their pleasure at this huge dinner to Dagon, their God. Samson will die, but so will Dagon. All right? So Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh Lord, that I, may be aven- that I may be avenged on the Philistine for my two eyes. By the way, they punched his eyes out. Samson grasped the two middle pillars in which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom were killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and his family came up, took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He judged Israel for 20 years. Samson is just this complicated character who in the end believed God's promise. Okay? Then there's Jephthah, last one. The Lord calls Jephthah, he's the outcast son of a prostitute, which in Old Testament law he wouldn't have been able to even worship with Israelites. But God calls him to come and free the people up from the Ammonites. And this deliverance cost him dearly. In Judges chapter 11, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Amorites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Amorites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So he goes and he defeats the Ammonites. It's given for us there in verses 32 and 33. And then he comes back home. And he's made this pledge. He's made this vow. Then Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. This is what happened any time a successful warrior. The man of the house came home after defending his home and his family and his land. They came out celebrating with tambourines. It was, it was common. So his daughter comes out. And the text tells us there in verse 34, she was the only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become a cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And the account goes on to tell us that she asked for permission to go and to take a leave from him and, and grieve her virginity. Now, here's the interesting thing about Jephthah. Okay? And this is something that, honestly, just over the last couple of weeks, and even, even just within the last day or so, I've, I've been reading about this. Oftentimes, Jephthah is, is held up as a man who was rash in his vow, and he was. He was rash in his vow. And he is also held up as an example of a man who committed child sacrifice. And there are many commentators who would say, yes, that is what he did. Because he makes this statement when he makes this vow, whatever comes out of those doors, I'm going to offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, there are commentators, biblically solid conservative commentators, who would say that phrase in and of itself can mean a burnt offering, but it also can mean just total commitment to the Lord. And so there are commentators who say, well, he didn't actually 
commit child sacrifice with his daughter, what he did do was take a vow on her having a family and having children. He put her virginity up as the, as the, the weight of his vow. So what he was sacrificing there was a family and children and grandchildren and her opportunity to have a husband and have children and have a family. Because it says she went to grieve her virginity. Strange phrases in this passage. He is never condemned in the Bible for making a child sacrifice. He is never held up as, a, as an example of someone who broke that most serious of laws in God's law of the Old Testament. So I just say there's, there's debate about what exactly he did that other than making a rash vow and, and costing his daughter, her family, and any opportunity to have children. That in and of itself is serious. So committing her through his vow to a life of celibacy or committing her to the altar as a burned sacrifice. Those are pretty, pretty stark divisions, right, in, in how you interpret this. Here's the point. The writer of Hebrews says he took God at his word. He believed God. Those are the examples. Okay? Here's what I think we can take from these four examples, all right? Gideon's obedience to the Lord cost him his family. They forsook him because of that. Jephthah made this vow at great cost, whether it was the life of his daughter or any opportunity at descendants. Samson had to die in order to deliver God's people. Remind you of anything? It should. It should. Like I said, the gospel is not explicitly presented in Judges, but there are pictures of it. Someone who leaves his family behind. A father who sacrifices his only son. Someone who dies so that others can live. This all points to the promised king. Here's what makes judges in some ways difficult to interpret, but yet easy to interpret. Jesus said in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me, Jesus said. Judges is written to bear witness to Jesus. Okay? It's dark. It's wretched. It's hard for us to understand in our culture and in our context. But it points us to Jesus. And Jesus is the filter by which we have to read Judges. Read all of these stories because they witness and bear witness to Jesus and the salvation that they needed and that we need. Okay? Judges reminds us and me how badly we need a Savior. Okay? We need a Savior. We need, some, we need one to come and rescue us. Judges also reminds us, as we're thinking about applications, of the problem with partial obedience or, equal to that, the seriousness of little things that we might not think are a big deal. Again, the failures of Israel came first in the areas of compromise. Then in the areas of acceptance. And then they adopted lifestyles. So we just need to be reminded that Israel's progressive decline into idolatry begins with compromise with the pagan culture. Now I'll say this too. Judges is not about the United States. Okay? This is not a political examination. This is spiritual about the people of God. It's for us as individuals to assess our own lives in light of what we see in Judges. It's proper for us as the church to assess our lives by what we see in Judges. And we just need to recognize the problem with partial obedience. A third thing that's an area of application for us is the responsibility, and listen to this, guys, it's huge, the responsibility of generational spiritual witness. 
The evil described in Judges is the fruit of Israel's progressive decline. And that decline began with a generation who forgot what God had done. It began with parents and grandparents who failed to teach and instruct their children about the ways of God, the faithfulness of God, the law of God. And so what we read earlier in Judges chapter 2 about what happened after Joshua died should be a clear warning to you, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, papa and nana, aunt and uncle, that we're one generation away from total godlessness. Let that be a reminder to us of that generational responsibility. And then finally, just this encouraging. Again, I said it before. Part of the reason I struggled, and I was just convicted about that early this morning, just as I was praying you know, and getting ready for this morning, I was just convicted about this. Part of the problem that I had with these four people mentioned in Hebrews is my own stinking pride. What in the world? How can you hold up that person as an example? And God convicted me. Gerald, if people could see into your heart, they'd say, what in the world? Don't look at Samson for chasing after the things that the world offers. You look too. Don't just look at Jephthah for making an opening in his mouth and making this rash claim and this rash vow. You open your mouth without thinking. Don't just look to Gideon as being a coward because he was afraid of what others would say or do when they saw him doing what God had called him to do. Because you fear men more than you fear God most of the time. So what I see in this book and what I see in Hebrews is this greatly encouraging, as I said before, God does hit straight licks with crooked sticks. But, listen... That is not an excuse for a lack of character. All right? None of these people are held up as examples of character, nor should they be. That character is seen in Christ. It's seen in our Savior. And character is critical for God's new covenant people. Okay? So we can be encouraged by that. And finally, just God keeps His promise. God's purposes and plans are not thwarted. Okay, they will not be thwarted. And God will continue to raise up and use his people. Amen. We can take confidence in that. All right. We'll see how this book ends next week. And we are thankful for a promised king. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your grace and mercy and patience. Help us, I pray, Lord, not to take those for granted. Examine each of our hearts today, Lord, and just show us where we may have compromised, accepted, adopted things that you would say are out of bounds. And Lord, I do pray that if there is anyone today here today, Lord, who's never trusted in Christ, maybe today, Lord, they see, indeed, they need a Savior. One who left the glory of heaven and laid down his life. And rose again. Thank you, God, that we can trust Jesus. And I pray that someone today would. And I pray that in his name. Amen.